Well, we turn in our Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. If you find Psalm there in the middle of your Bible and just go forward a little bit, you'll be in Proverbs. And at the end of Proverbs, we find this epilogue in a weird way uh, to the book of Proverbs that is written about the woman who fears the Lord. Uh, the words of King Lemuel uh, to his wife or to his people, instructing them on what uh, a woman of good character looks like. So Proverbs 31, we're going to be beginning to look at verse 10. This is the word of God. An excellent wife who can find? She is far more precious than jewels, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. We thank God for his word and ask him to write its truth now upon our hearts. Well, we've been asking the last two weeks, what is a man? What does he look like? What are the biblical characteristics of manhood? In our series uh, looking at biblical manhood and womanhood, normally we work through books of the Bible, but uh, now we're taking a a little bit of a break from after uh, going through the book of Leviticus um, before we launch into the book of Luke to to discuss this uh, really important topic in our culture, and that is um, the heart of what biblically um, we should how should we how we should think about the genders, how we should think about manhood and womanhood, masculinity, femininity. And so last week, for all of the, you guys who got uh, elbowed uh, to the side from your wives, um, I would encourage you not to elbow them back uh, this week <laughs> uh, for fear of, of your life. Um, <clears throat> but we want to get at, uh, this week and next week, the heart of what femininity really is. And we do this by recognizing that our world as it has in some ways improved, certainly, in its treatment of, of women, and as it has 
um, progressed in, 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 the, in, in the best sense of the word uh, to understand these things, has also come with it lots of, lots of cultural baggage that is not so helpful. From the radical femininity to the reaction against that of the you know, patriarchal societies and different things that have grown up. But not just that, but then in the midst of the world moving forward with new ideas about women in the workplace over the last hundred years and uh, the role of women in career and home and all these things has come, I think, some really and unfortunately high expectations for women. Uh, Today's ideal woman uh, radiates both beauty and competence at all times. Uh, If you look at her Instagram feed, you will see that she can get the promotion, balance her budget, get her kids to eat all the Brussels sprouts they might like, run a marathon, all without smudging her makeup uh, while preparing her speech to ask for a raise. Women today are told that they can be whatever they want to be, and they don't need to let the traditional outdated stereotypes of femininity define them, and yet at the same time, so women in our culture feel trapped by the impossibly lofty expectations of our modern Uh, definitions of womanhood, to be successful, to have the perfect family, uh, to be uh, pretty like a magazine cover, to have a life that is so put together that could be featured on on the nightly news as an example for all. Now we, again, want to recognize that women have not always been treated uh, by societies as deserving of equal worth and respect as men. And that has happened in our own society in years past. And Those types of injustices certainly do persist today, and it's well reported that in the arena of work, women sometimes receive unequal wages with comparable skills, but when you examine all of the the factors, we realize that it comes from women having multiple desires, having competing desires sometimes that men don't have, things like requesting more flexible schedules on the job to dedicate time to child-rearing. They risk being seen less ambitious and not receiving promotions sometimes. And uh, when men are bold, when men are outspoken, they're called outspoken and bold. Women often get labeled with lots of ugly words whenever they're more outspoken and bold in in career and in in the world. And so it, it becomes interesting because we live in a fallen world where abuse, neglect, and human slavery still affect women and men but where women tragically tend to suffer disproportionately the weight of such burdens in societies over the course of the history of of the world. So what do we do about this? How do we understand this? Not from a cultural understanding, because that's not going to get us much of anywhere. But how do we understand this biblically? Exalted expectations from a culture on the one hand, challenges and and maybe a, a history of suffering on the other. Where do we go to think rightly about what it means to be a woman? There's just been recently this year a documentary released by Matt Walsh called What is a Woman? And this is, brings a new challenge because in that documentary, it's, it's not about these cultural expectations of womanhood, but what, a, what the definition of a woman is with new um, uh, transgender and uh, alternative lifestyle um, growth in our, in our culture. And he simply goes around to a lot of activists and so forth and politicians and asks them, what is a woman? And no one can give him a definition. A woman is whatever you want, whatever you identify a woman to be, is kind of the answer. Well, the deep problem with that is if a woman can be anything to anybody, then being a woman means nothing at all. And so you have that on one hand, sided with these 
unrealistic, lofty expectations on the other that often women put upon themselves and the competition among women that often happens for these things. And, and what's a woman to do? How are you to think? Well, again, how do we think rightly about this? How, how do, where do we go to learn, for men to learn how to treat women? Well, as we've done each week, we go to Scripture, of course. And what will we find? Well, let me give you some general observations, some just general things to think about. Um, and that is, first of all, women, actually, contrary to what culture says that they're doing, women have far greater dignity and worth that the, than the world actually even describe, uh, ascribes to them. Because what we know from the Bible is that women, like men, are created in the image of God to display his glory throughout the universe. And so whatever mistakes and sins have happened in relationships with women in the past or in the present, um, and whatever the world may say defines a woman, and whatever our cultural movements change and ebb and flow in the description of women, the Bible is clear that first and foremost women are highly valuable image bearers of the one true and living God. And that is at the heart of who women are. But not only that, but women have a far greater problem than the world recognizes. It's not whatever supposed pay gap might exist or, in, or even inequality. No, the, problem, the, the biggest problem that women face is the same problem that men face, and that is the curse of sin and rebellion against God. But they also have a far greater Savior than the world offers. That it is not just uh, women's liberation or egalitarianism, but it is a sinless servant who is radical in the way he befriended and died for women. And women have been given instructions by this Savior, Jesus Christ, in his word on how to express femininity. And so this morning we are going to study some handful, uh, a handful of key texts that I think will hopefully give us the building blocks for how to understand biblical femininity. And then next week we'll get into some more specifics from uh, the New Testament, similar to what we did with uh, the men. Now, uh, again, a few things to point out before we do that. And we mentioned some of these in our considerations of men when we studied masculinity. But I want, I want to use these same ideas to frame our study of femininity. And that is that, first of all, to live as a godly woman on one level is simply to seek godliness. Right? Well, when it comes to our Christian discipleship, there is, as we mentioned this, there's a lot of overlap between women and men. We're both heirs in Christ. We're both sinners. And the New Testament rarely, but it does, but rarely does it give the two genders different instructions. We are all called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're all called to follow things like the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's not as though men can lie and women can't and and women can disobey their parents and dishonor their parents, but, but men can't, and so forth and so on. So most of the commands of Scripture will apply to both. And even where there are descriptions of the individual roles between the two genders, the Bible will often uh, be clear enough that we can apply those things in different ways, whether we're women or men. And this morning, though we focus on the very specific question of what tends to be distinctive about womanhood in particular, as a woman, you'll always, uh, we have to remember that as a woman, you will always express the fruit of the Spirit as women. 
not as generic, genderless persons. So our hope is to describe what the family resemblances of the dispositions and inclinations that all women tend to have in common according to God's creation design. But we admit that, again, we're speaking in generalities. I can't go and sing. I'm not single on any specific woman. I'm, we're giving the generalities from Scripture of what womanhood looks like. And recognize that some women will be more adept at some of these things than others. Some of these things were more, will be more of a struggle for certain women than others. So we're speaking in generalities. But it's really important that we understand that God desires us to express the fruit of the Spirit and our own pursuit of holiness as men or women. Again, not as somehow these genderless, uh, abstract people. And uh, we were lamenting this week that the, I think it's the Air Force Academy this week, uh, put out new guidelines for cadets saying not even to refer in, in writing and things like this, not even to refer to mom and dad, but simply to call them parent or caregiver. That's at the Air Force Academy um, in their diversity and inclusion training. And so the world is trying to basically uh, neuter the whole world to where we're genderless, abstract, and that is not the design that God created for us. We, God actually desires that we lean into our masculinity and our femininity in the ways as prescribed by Scripture. And that's the idea that whenever we study God's creation and his design for us, we remember that creation has fallen. Which means that some women find that feminine tendencies feel less natural for them. The fall has made it difficult to perceive God's design, and especially in a culture which is setting farther and farther down the Romans 1 road, um, it makes it much more difficult. And so the goal is simply to seek to live with the grain, not cutting against the grain of the genders that God has made us to be. For some, that's going to be relatively straightforward. For others, it may require seeking wisdom for your own personality and temperament, your context, and the culture in which you live. The last thing I want to point out before we jump in is that Scripture will often describe femininity in the context of marriage relationships. When the Scriptures were written, of course, marriage was a familiar context in which the virtues of femininity are illustrated. And so just like men, oftentimes these things are described in terms of relationship to husbands and children. Now that doesn't mean that every woman has to be married or have kids to, not, uh, to, to be a complete woman. It's just that this is the most common way that uh, women are going to be found. And so uh, they're described in that way. And so if you are single or widowed or don't have children of your own, uh, then it doesn't mean that you just say, well, I'll check out, that part's not for me. Just like when we talked about uh, men, there are things that we can apply uh, and principles we can apply regardless of our situation. And uh, femininity doesn't depend on marriage and kids, of course, for we can look at Esther, Ruth, um, Mary was a, a widow, and others in scriptures, and we find exemplary, strong, single women and widows who can and do teach us a lot. And we'll try to do that as we go along in our study. Now, just to point out the obvious, I'm teaching this uh, as a man. And so, uh, of course, as we'll study in coming weeks, God has called men to the role of formal teaching in the gathered church. So I'm going to do my best to explain what Scripture says in the beginning portion of our time today. But the Bible 
also affirms that we ha- have a lot to learn from women informally as they give testimony to what God has done in their lives. And so I really encourage, especially men, talk to your wives about these things, how they have, have been affected. Because it's, uh, um, I will say this, men are, tend to be, we're much more stupid. I mean, it's simple. We're just more simple in a lot of ways. And, uh, and, and women tend to be uh, more complicated. Mark Gunger has this illustration where he talks about men's brains and women's brains, and he has two models, and he says men's brains tend to be like a series of boxes, and there's a box for everything, and everything stays in its box, and no box touches any other box. And so when the, your husband is in football box, you can't talk to him about yard work or vacation plans because he will not hear it. Right? You have to have him close that box and open the vacation box if you want him to talk about that, or the kids' box, or the, or the whatever box. And he goes over to this other model, and he says, women's brains are less like a bunch of boxes, and they're more like a tangle of wires. And every wire touches every other single wire in that whole bundle. And so you maybe think you'd be talking about one thing, but you're not talking about that, you're talking about something else. You may think she's mad about A, but she's really mad about Q. And you have to learn each other. So uh, encourage men uh, to have conversations with your, your wives, your daughters, your mothers, your sisters, and sisters in Christ as we explore how to be better in our relationships with women. Well, like anything, it begins in Genesis, right? And uh, we didn't read from Genesis this morning because we've read from it in previous weeks. But just remember that Genesis 1, particularly, 26 and 27, is the foundational text for all of our views of men and women. Because there it teaches that God created men and women, male and female. He created them in his image, in his likeness. And so women and men have the same value, dignity, honor, and worth. Also remember the God's creation mandates were given to men and women both in Genesis 1 as he calls the human race together to exercise dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. And then when we turn to Genesis 2, we see that God creates man first. And in verse 15, he says that he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so man begins exercising dominion over the ground from which God created him. And he names the animals, he works and guards the gardens, but things are not yet very good. So in verse 18, we're told that God says it's not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verses 23 and 24, we see that because the woman is bone of man's bones and flesh of his flesh, that they can be united together one day as one flesh in the covenant bonds of marriage. That in fact, the man was literally unable to be fruitful and multiply on his own. That he was unable to fulfill God's commands, God's creation mandates, by himself. He needed Eve. So neither of them is more important than the other, right? That, in fact, we didn't need birthing persons. We needed women to give birth to children, if there was ever going to be anyone past Adam and Eve themselves. And so neither of them is more important than the other, in God's eyes. They have different roles that are expressed in their, in, their, in their separate genders. And God ordained to express his image most fully using these two genders, male and female. And that they have a lot of similarities, but they also have very, uh, uh, a lot of differences. And uh, to those differences, a lot of men uh, will say amen. Um, we're grateful for those differences. 
So, they are unable to exercise God's dominion and the command to be fruitful and multiply without each other. So with that said, the man does have an inclination toward working the ground. And thus, the dominion part of the creation mandate is more in his territory. The woman, on the other hand, is the one who bears children, helping the couple fulfill the be fruitful part of the creation mandate in particular. They need each other. They fulfill the the creation mandate together, but they have different strengths, tendencies, and roles with regard to those mandates. So this leads to the question, what is the woman's role in the first marriage designed to be? Well, in chapter 2, verse 18, she's a helper to the man as they jointly exercise dominion in the garden. And helper here is not a diminutive title, it's actually an exalted title. For God himself is called the helper of his people in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 54, 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Well, to call God a helper isn't to diminish God. It's to say that we are absolutely in need of him, and he is precisely the help that we need. Without God's help, we would be doomed. And that's how desperately Adam needed Eve. So the title helper does confirm that the husband is called to exercise some loving, sacrificial authority in a marriage relationship. And as we've mentioned previously, and as we will talk again when we talk about how this relates to the home in a few weeks, man was created first. Paul points this out in 1 Timothy 2.13. And therefore God holds him accountable first for the couple's sin that occurs in chapter 3. But helper is a term of strength here. And so it doesn't mean that Eve was created to make Adam breakfast in bed every morning or fetch him the TV remote. God blesses the man with her to help him carry out God's commission and commands. It wasn't good for him to be alone, primarily because he was unable to exercise the dominion and be fruitful and multiply without her. So even in the context of the first marriage, Eve was to be Adam's equal with her own distinct gifts who would complement him in every way, even as she submitted to his leadership in their marriage. She was to improve his weaknesses and sharpen his strengths. She was to use her wisdom, her strength, her own perspective, insight, and creativity to help him in ways that he crucially needs. And his calling was to love and protect her sacrificially, and they both fail at this. Matthew Henry has this famous quote. I don't know how biblically accurate it is, but I think it does express something of this. Uh, He is allegorizing a little bit here, so... Um, don't take this as an exposition of the text, but, but he does give us a helpful reminder that he says, uh, the woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him or of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. Good to remember. Because what happens next is the fall, where Adam and Eve both sin against God in a way that goes against his design for their roles. Adam was supposed to lead and protect Eve, and instead, he follows her idea to eat the fruit. Eve was supposed to follow and help her husband, and instead, she leads him into temptation at the suggestion of the serpent. And what happens to men and women as a result of the sin? Well, the curse is given. Genesis 3.16 now shows that women will have increased pain in childbearing, to which women who have given birth naturally will say, "Uh uh-huh. And... There is this interesting parallel. Nevin was helpful in pointing this out. Notice this parallel between the, the, the woman and the man. Man is to uh, work and keep the garden. Women are to be fruitful and multiply. And in those, very, in those distinct roles, God has, uh, through the sin, has frustrated this. And God has declared, look at the, the curse. 
The curse for the man is on the ground itself so that weeds and thorns and thistles come up. But he can't escape his ob- obligation to work the ground because he's going to get hungry. And so he's going to eat from the ground. So though he might wish to avoid the unpleasant and the, we might say, increased pain of working the ground, it will now, he will have to. He'll be forced to go back there uh, in, in the fulfilling even of his creation mandates and even in sort of his natural desires to eat food and to you know, make a habitable home and so forth. And the parallel to women is notice how women are given increased pain in childbearing. So uh, just like the ground got more difficult for men, uh, the bearing children got more difficult for women, as is their uh, part of being fruitful and multiplying in the creation mandates. And yet, her desire will still be for her husband, meaning that she will still desire uh, to have children. She will still desire to be married. So though she might want to escape from the pain of childbearing, she will desire children. She will desire uh, to be married and to, and to have and build a home together with her husband. So that they're both of their kind of creation mandates have been frustrated. Both of their creation mandates have increased pain. They will not be because of the temperaments that God has created women and men to be and their physical needs. They will have to deal with each other. They will ha- men will still have to work and women will still end up uh, with knucklehead men. That's still going to happen. And, uh, and we see that. We see that uh, continually in the course of the world, or we wouldn't be here, right? So they, uh, men have this working disposition that we've been talking about, and the scriptures suggest, therefore, that femininity tends to involve this relational disposition, okay? The man was created from the ground, called to work the ground, saw the ground cursed after sin. Woman was created from the man, called to help the man, sees her role in childbearing and her relationship with the man, challenged by the fall, but she still uh, wants to be with the man. And this points to her relational orientation. But while the fall has made it harder for both to fulfill their uh, gender-specific dispositions that God has given, it hasn't eradicated them. Men and women still bear the image of God, so while men are, of course, called to care for others in life-giving relationships, Women, in particular, seem designed to be relationally oriented and to use their strengths and energy to nurture and bring life to others. We see this even after the fall. In Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So God ordained that part of Eve's role would still involve bringing about life. That's what the Hebrew word Eve related to the word for life means. And so we should infer from this that femininity involves the nurturing of life in others, not only physical life through being a mom, which women will do, but cultivating spiritual life, which all women can and should do for those around them. So without a doubt, the fall has made a bitterly hard road for some women in the bearing of children and dealing with husbands and dealing with culture. Uh, There is a recurring theme of barrenness that we see in the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis. That's a painful reminder that childbearing is, in a very literal, in a literal sense, cursed like the ground. And sadly, so women today testify to the anguish of the unmet longing for having children. But the rest of Scripture reminds us that you don't need to be married or have kids to express life-giving, nurturing femininity. It certainly is in those areas. But all women are designed by God to use their relational gifts and strengths to foster fruit and growth and encouragement and godliness in others within the body of Christ. 
Paul exhorts the women in Titus 2 that we read to train other women in godliness, which is consistent with this feminine inclination to cultivate life in others, to help them be better helpers, to help them be, uh, express what we're going to see in Proverbs 31 in just a second more fully. It's what we see in Luke 8, where Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and the other women use their financial means to help support, sustain, and nourish Jesus and his other male disciples. God calls some women to be physical mothers, but he calls all women to be mothers and sisters within the body of Christ in the broader sense, again, nourishing spiritual life in us. So that's when we turn, not surprisingly, to Proverbs 31, which gives us a profile of a godly woman. Now, what this chapter is, is really a summation of the women, of the, um, of the wisdom that's contained in the whole book of Proverbs directed here toward uh, a woman. The woman we're about to see is a model of godliness for men and women alike, but I want you to notice uniquely feminine virtues in these descriptions and what we can learn about femininity through them, the types of things that were described here. So let's look at them, and I've given you the list uh, because there's a whole bunch of them. The first thing we want to mention is that this uh, Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 is an acrostic poem in Hebrew, meaning each verse, each sort of stanza of this poem begins with a successive letter of the alphabet, and there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and therefore we have 22 stanzas in this poem. And so these are not given in, these are given in a poetic order as opposed to a, a logical order, if you will. And so some of these overlap because, again, the writer is writing a poem to describe the ultimate godly woman here. Well, it begins with uh, the idea in verse 10 that an excellent wife, who can find? And uh, she is more precious than jewels. And uh, the, the olive here is the beginning of it, which, strangely, olive in Hebrew um, doesn't have uh, a sound. Hebrew is a weird language, and they have... A few placeholder, uh, the Hebrew alphabet is all consonants. There are no vowels. The vowels are assumed and implied. You simply have to know where they go. (laughs) And uh, eventually a group called the Masoretes decided to note them, but they weren't letters, so there's little markings. If you ever look at Hebrew and you see letters and then you see like dots and little dashes and stuff all around, those are the vowel markings that help you to know what uh, vowels go go where. Now, originally Hebrew, even as... written, didn't have those markings. You just were supposed to know that that was an ah sound after that letter or that there was a vowel uh, vowel combination and it was supposed to be an ai sound or something like that, but the Masoretes realized that this is ridiculous and so they gave us little markings to put around them. But the reason you have an aleph, even though it doesn't make the ah sound, it makes no sound at all, is that there would be a vowel sound there without a consonant attached to it. So a word that begins with a ah or a eh would often have one of these placeholder consonants there that's silent. So that's how it begins. Eh, maybe you don't care about that, but it's a little Hebrew nerdery that I get to use. Um, so that's the first one. An excellent wife, who can find? Where, where is she? What does she look like? Well, she's far more precious than jewels. She is worth treasuring. And then he goes on. That's kind of the intro. And then he goes on to describe what she looks like. Well, Aleph Bet is next. Bet. And we have the verse beginning with the word batach in English. Bless you. Uh, English, here we have she does, she seeks, she is like in a lot of these. Um, but in, in Hebrew, they start with different words. And for poetic purposes, uh, the translators often um, make uh, similarities here. But here it begins with the word for trust. Trust. Um, 
Again, this is probably done to make it easier to memorize because you could remember, okay, uh, you know, whenever you learned piano notes, you learned like every good boy does fine uh, and, and different things. You, acrostics make it easier, and that was probably why this was written in an acrostic, to make it easier to memorize before they were had, you know, not everybody had a copy of Proverbs with them. So they would learn these, memorize these things. Well, trust it begins and puts a stress on this idea making verse 11 really about confidence, uh, about being reliable and trustworthy, that the husband here who is responsible for providing for the household uh, may have a lot of worries. And if he can entrust his wife to things like the housekeeping and so forth, his mind would be at rest and he would be able to concentrate better on his work. That's the idea here, uh, that, he is, that she is reliable and trustworthy. And so that is a, these are all things that women ought to emulate and seek to do in their various contexts. Verse 12 speaks of a wife who is supportive and loyal. Uh, the verse here shows how she has gained a, the confidence of her husband through her positive attitude in their marriage, that her aim is to bring him good and not harm. And so the opening word is, um, uh, is, is a gimel, and it's the opening word gamal, uh, which means to perform or to accomplish and it describes what she sees as the purpose of the days of her life as a married woman, to support her husband in his calling to help him accomplish uh, the best for their family. Now, this can sound strange in these liberated days when partners often follow separate careers, but it's been uh, proved to keep couples together for a lifetime, as the word all here implies. And so it's not saying women can't work out of the home, but both women and men by the way, are, are be supporters of each other. And, uh, but the more women support and are loyal to their husbands, uh, it increases the husband's confidence to, uh, to do his work well. And typically it's because men, by their natures, need support and loyalty. They're qualities that they respond to. Verse 13 speaks about a woman who is uh, efficient and energetic. Darash, meaning carefully seeking and choosing or selecting making clothes for the household from wool and flax or linen was very common of a practice. And so apart from the great and the rich, clothes would all be homemade, of course, in years past. And what is noble here is not just the making of the clothes, but the, but the efficient selecting of good material, which might have needed spinning first, according to verse 19, uh, when we see later. But the enjoyment she derives from doing it as well, that she is eager to do this in verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands, that there is an energy about her, that she's willing and eager. The word eager, I think, is actually a better translation of that word there. Although older daughters and servants, of course, probably helped, she supervised and participated, was industrious, encouraged under her relationship with God uh, to, to support her family and to help uh, efficiently use resources for the sake of her family. Verse 14 talks about a woman being considerate and pain-taking, like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. The opening word, haitha, begins, uh, and means literally she is, and um, it means that the noble wife herself who does or at least organizes uh, the shopping and the procuring of materials. Again, is careful in selecting uh, uh, food for her family as she is for materials for the clothing. She wants her family to eat well, uh, this can involve the inconvenience of traveling and meeting with ship, shipping groups and, and merchants. But since the merchant ships take the trouble to bring food from afar, the mom 
seems to, this wife, this mother, seems to go afar for her family. She may be able to buy food more cheaply or in bulk farther away, is maybe what's being implied here. So she's considerate of the things that she brings into her home. She's painstaking and even going to the merchant ships themselves. Fifth, she's unselfish and disciplined. She's unselfish and disciplined. Uh, verse 15, she rises while it is yet night, provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So again, if you think about the context of the ancient world, food not only had to be purchased uh, for the larder to be preserved, but had to be prepared for the table, and it was often a, a slow, much slower process than it takes for us. And so whoever, whoever does this has to be at work in advance of those who need to eat. And in the case of breakfast, when often men would be working, most men would be working in fields or in shops or something like that, and needed to be up at sunrise, needed to be out at work, they're here, this wife is unselfish in her needs and gets up early to provide for her family before her husband is awakened so that he can then go off to work. And again, we have to apply these things correctly. What this doesn't mean is that women have to get up in the dark, right? We have to understand the principle being taught here as opposed to the, uh, the actual way that that functioned in their society. But in that society, it meant getting up early and preparing for those. But a lot of moms know what this is like to have to get up early when it's still dark outside at certain times of the year in order to get food made for breakfast, in order to get lunches made for kids and, and husband, maybe if he takes lunch to work and so forth. It requires effort. It requires an unselfish attitude that you're getting up to serve others. And, and, and it requires discipline because you have to do it over and over again because those, you know, those, those kids, they just eat that food every day and they want more the next. Uh, and so it requires discipline. And so this is, um, indicates that she takes trouble not only over the shopping but the cooking ahead of the servant girls who themselves need breakfast if they're going to work efficiently in the household. Um, how few would see the advantage of freeing uh, servants from the chore of making their own breakfast so that they can give themselves to other tasks. So you see the, the helping attitude, the unselfish, disciplined attitude of this, of this woman being described. Verse 16 uh, indicates that she's considerate and cautious. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So having fed the household early, she is free to improve the family's fortunes. And here the opening uh, word, zamah, means examine, to weigh up, to consider what the most profitable enterprise would be, and in this case it's land. Clearly her husband works in town, it seems, possibly in government, according to verse 23, may be the case here, because again the king is giving these instructions, or he would be doing this. But what sort of land? A field fit for cultivation. So her thinking is rooted in, um, in finding a field suitable for planting a vineyard. And while researching this, she considers what funds are available, not only for the purpose, but for the cultivation of the field. This means calculating earnings, the profits from the sale of the garments. She's a businesswoman, you see. She has business acumen. She has financial acumen. So even here we see not a, a woman who is just, you know, uh, I was joking with the guys on Thursday night, and I said, yeah, the... Uh, uh, the, the kind of patriarchal, chauvinistic version of this sermon would not be titled the, the Heart of Femininity, but we would be called Make Me a Sandwich, right? And that's not the idea here. Here's a woman who does provide physically for her family with food and clothing, but more than that, she, she even is, is businesslike. She looks for ways to improve their lives and to manage their funds. 
Verse 17 speaks of her being prepared and able. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Meaning, she's not just always confining herself to administrative duties and sides of business life, but she's not above manual work. She um, has a, a word that means, it's the word uh, shagara, which means uh, something along girding herself. So uh, again, uh, soldiers would gird themselves, you know, gird up your loins, they would gird their, their robes and tie them around their waist so that they wouldn't get tripped whenever they would have to run. And so here, it's like she's preparing herself. It's a, a metaphorical expression, like rolling up your sleeves uh, in order to tackle the job vig- vigorously. Uh, the image I got when I was thinking of this verse was Rosie the Riveter, uh, those of you who know her, that she had her muscles and she had her sleeves rolled up and her bandana tied to help the war effort at the time. And so the idea was that this woman it prepares herself. She, she, makes, she rolls up her sleeves and is not afraid to, to get down and to tackle the job vigorously that needs to be done. And so she has a disciplined life. So she has arms strong for the demanding tasks that lie ahead. Verse 18 describes a woman who's hardworking and productive, uh, that she perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. That unlike her other duties, they're not just over at sunset to see that her trading is profitable and to prepare for the next day. Uh, here, she literally, she tastes, meaning she personally ensures the profitability of the of the enterprise. She tastes, the ESV says, perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Maybe because, they again, they were growing grapes or so forth. And it works for working into the evening. But her lamp does not go out at night. doesn't mean that she, that she never goes to sleep or stays up till 3 in the morning and then wakes up at 4. That's not the point here. Because remember, darkness falls uh, a lot of times around 6, 7 o'clock at night. And in this uh, culture, you didn't have lights. You had to light a lamp. And so her, she may have gone to bed at 8 or 9 uh, alongside the rest of her family, but it meant that just because the sun was out didn't mean that she stopped working. Again, she was hardworking. She was productive. She was considerate in all these things. Um, she's, she doesn't necessarily burn the candle at both ends, but it just means she's hardworking and diligent. 9. Skillful and diligent uh, is described here. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Before wool can be made into clothing, it has to be spun. This takes skilled work, done entirely by hands and simple machines in those days. The spinning wool was a long way off. So the stress falls on her hands, the word which begins the sentence, whose initial letter is sort of like our Y. Uh, The term translated distaff and spindle are unique, and it's impossible to visualize exactly how they did it, but they were the tools that were used. One hand held the distaff, which spun the wool possibly with the use of some kind of a weight, while the fingers on the other hand held the spindle onto which the thread would be wound. A difficult, time-consuming job that required practice, probably from the time that she was very young. And she was noble indeed to tackle this difficult task along with all of her other duties. Diligence and skill is needed to do that. Verse 20 speaks about a woman who is generous and charitable. The NIV doesn't bring out uh, that the same two words for hands are used here as in verse 19. She puts her hands to the distaff, uh, her hands to hold the spindle. In verse 20, she opens her hands, it's singular here, opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So there's a continuity between these two verses uh, that the ESV, I think, does a better job of of bringing out than some other uh, versions like the NIV. But here, it's the word kapach or kapach. And uh, the hands she used for spinning the wool, she extends to the poor 
and to the needy. She thinks not only of her own profit, but she thinks of others in need and is as intent on giving as, as on getting, uh, says Matthew Henry. Here is the first indication that she was not only a noble wife, but simply, again, a child of God's pursuing holiness who expects um, those who have to help those who need, both under the law and under the gospel. We see this in the Old Testament and in the New. Not only that, but in verse 21, she was practical and prepared. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Or the word for scarlet there can mean something like double thickness, uh, thick clothes. And uh, here, the, uh, highlighting the fact that a noble wife thinks not only of prosperity and good times, but of possible adversity. She's practical. So this is for those men whose wives are, are constantly asking them, uh, how, what's our savings account look like, not just what did we spend? And so women need to be thinking about those things alongside their husbands, thinking, are we saved up? Do we have proper insurance? And that's the kind of idea here. Snow was infrequent in the Middle East, but it was not unknown to them. And so she doesn't take any chances, but she makes sure that her family and her servants have warm as well as cool clothing. And a scarlet cloth was expensive, but it was thick. It was dyed as well as woven. And so she was prepared uh, for this. Verse 22 points out that she is tasteful and dignified. Uh, the opening word literally means coverings. Uh, but the question is whether they were for the bed or for the walls or for the floors or for the body. The Hebrew simply says, for herself, but she is closed according to verse 22. She makes bed coverings for herself. Clearly the ESV picks a side here. Uh, her clothing is fine linen and purple. So the material which she makes up herself is imported. Fine linen from Egypt. Purple came, comes from Phoenicia. Uh, she, does she turn out uh, after all the women... Uh, to be a worldly woman, breaking the rules of modesty? No. Um, dress didn't need to imply luxury and show, but could reflect simply their position in society. She was wife to a, an elder of the city, according to verse 23. She, they commanded respect in their community, and so they, they had some nice things. It wasn't wrong to have nice things. That she, she adorned her house beautifully, in other words, that she was tasteful and dignified uh, in her surroundings. Verse 23 describes a woman who is devoted and submissive, uh, that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The word that begins this sentence is the word known, which has the sense of respected, well-known, of good reputation. And notice that it's describing her husband, because he has a seat among the elders of the district. And since throughout Proverbs, prosperity and success are the rewards of following wisdom, godly wisdom, he is clearly a wise man, but this is due in part, according to these verses, to the character of his wife, the character and ability of his wife. It's that classic saying that behind every great man is a great woman. And here it seems to be the case that this woman has helped her husband to be able to have a, a great reputation. And although she, the, though she herself is not prominent in local politics, which were conducted at the city gate, she shares his reputation through her relationship and through their marriage. And this explains probably her dress in verse 22. Verse 24 describes her as being observant and opportunistic, opportunistic in a positive way, uh, that she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. So again, linen garment, this word is what is uh, described first in this um, verse. Probably some kind of a summer dress is actually what's being described here, for which she made a sash. 
So she has a, a complete outfit for sale. The materials used for this were local, plentiful, and having her own workers, she could uh, make it cheaply, sell it to the merchants in exchange for other things, clothes and food. And so she saw opportunities. She was industrious. She took it. She was observant. She saw what she had. She saw what the opportunity was uh, to make a profit, and she took it. Verse 25 speaks about her being strong and secure. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. Here is um, the word for strength is what's emphasized, which stands at the beginning of the sentence. Choz is the word. And it's uh, someone who has so much going for her as this wife can easily trust her position and her possessions, but her security lay in the strength of her character, which gives her dignity and self-respect, qualities that bear up during the changing circumstances of the world, especially in the days to come, so that she can laugh at what might come ahead. Not because she thought her fortunes would never change, but because she had a positive state of mind. Uh, verse 26 describes her as being discreet and wise. Uh, the word is Pia, which means her mouth, literally. And so for the first time, we're told of what she says, that her conversation here, verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So characterized by wisdom and love, we have heard, we have heard enough to believe that this is a wise woman taking her place along. Uh, women like Abigail in 1 Samuel, Priscilla in Acts 18, as the wife of some sort of a civic leader, she would speak discreetly and be able to give him good advice uh, to those who asked her. But she did better than that. The, the phrase there, um, uh, teaching of kindness, is an interesting uh, phrase. Um, it's the word Torah, the teaching of God, and chesed, which is faithful covenant love. So she, this is how the ESV translates it, teaching of kindness. Faithful, loving law teaching, essentially. Um, so she speaks the truth in love. This is what she passes on to others in her discreet and wise ways. Verse 27 speaks of her as being aware and involved. Sophia, which means uh, she watches over. The idea of watching over is emphasized. Although a woman in that society, she is a leader of those under her care, whether they're children's or servants or workers in the fields. She doesn't merely give orders and leave them to do it, but she is aware of what they're doing, verse 27 says. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So she's not lazy. She's involved in the things that she manage, manages. Long before Paul wrote, if a man will not work, he should not eat, in 2 Thessalonians 3, she was practicing those ideals. And then in verses 28 to 31, we have the last few stanzas, which kind of lump together, talk about her, um, her reputation, and that she is appreciated and commended by those around her. And so the passage ends by showing how others respond to her life. Uh, verse 28 begins with a word that means to arise, <clears throat> which conjures up the picture of, uh, of people standing to applaud or to commend. Uh, appreciation that comes from multiple directions. It comes from her children in verse 28. Um, oh, what happiness that this mother would have experienced. More than all the wealth and success, if the one thing to gain her children's respect um, when they see all the work and hard work and thought and care that went into her um, raising them and helping their father. Her husband approves of her in verses 28 and 29. He was hers even before the children came, and from the time of their marriage, it's been her aim to help serve him and his calling. How did she do this? Well, we've seen 
all the various ways in which she's done this. Um, many wives do their best, though, to only be met by uh, the worst from some husbands. And so this both is a call to the value of her work, but also a reminder of, of husbands to appreciate their wives and to maybe every once in a while make sure that you tell them uh, that you appreciate all that they do for you. Uh, so here we have sincere gratitude. Um, and uh, again, she's not alone in the qualities that she displays in the work she does, but she does lots of noble things. And the husband sees them and appreciates them. And to her husband, she surpasses them all, and he would know, because he sees her every day. God himself seems to give approval for him, that uh, she fears the Lord, that uh, the world is deceptive, and uh, there's nothing wrong with charm of manner or, or external beauty, but outward charm can cover foolish character. Physical beauty can be all too fleeting, and so here, one this woman is ultimately fears the Lord, and she, she looks to receive her commendation and ultimate appreciation from him and him alone. And her fellow citizens even see her, give uh, her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates, in those city gates. Her fellow citizens will praise her works. Now, in this we have several themes. Her approach to marriage, her domesticity, her business acumen, her charity, her care for herself, her character, and her reputation. And all of these things apply to her. And by the way, again, this speaks in the context of a marriage with children, but these principles apply to women who are single as well. Again, we have examples of women in the Bible who are noteworthy in their efforts to bless others. There's Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, which uh, says that she was full of good works and acts of charity. Or Phoebe in Romans 16 that says she was a servant of the church at Sancria, who had been a patron of many, including the Apostle Paul. And we don't know if these women were married, but it's telling that their husbands aren't mentioned here, that they're simply notable for how they nourish and cultivate life in others. So what do we do with all this? Well, these are notice again that really this is a list, a long list, of what a godly woman ought to look like, and yet... I would say that if we apply each and every one of these things, there's not a single one of these things that a godly man can't also aspire to be. Each and every one of us, young or old, men or women, ought to be reliable, trustworthy, supportive and loyal, efficient and energetic, considerate, painstaking, unselfish and disciplined, considerate, cautious, prepared and able, hardworking and productive, skillful and diligent, generous and charitable, practical and prepared, tasteful and dignified, devoted and submissive in, in certain areas, observant and opportunistic, strong and secure, discreet and wise, aware and involved, appreciated and commended by those around us. These are things all believers ought to aspire to. And this woman is described as doing these godly activities, taking part in these things for the, for the sake of her husband and her family and her community. And so the application, therefore, is to all of you women to find ways in your contexts how can you best exemplify these characteristics? Which of these are the hardest for you to do? Work on your weaknesses and then increase in your strengths in helping to serve both your family and your community and your business if you're in business, uh, whatever it is, in a way that would be admirable and that ultimately is done under the fear of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is we read a list like this and there's a temptation to start keeping score. There's a temptation to go, well, I'm about 8 out of 22, so I might as well just give up. Right? As if, who can meet this standard? 
Remember, that's where the actual Psalm 31, verse 10 begins. Who can find a worth of noble character? Well, it's more precious than jewels, meaning that this type of character is very rare. In fact, I think it probably doesn't exist. Because I think this, again, is a poem. It's not meant to say that he's describing a particular woman who is superwoman, who has all of these characteristics all of the time and never sins, because he doesn't describe her sin. And yet, any woman is a sinner is going to sin. She's going to struggle with various points of these. And so this list is not meant, again, I don't think it's not meant to be this burden that men say, okay, honey, let's go down the scorecard for the week. Oh, well, you were pretty, you were pretty involved this week, but uh, oh, you weren't very prepared, so I'm going to take demerits. No, that's not the idea at all, is it? It's simply, here is, here is this picture of what to aspire to. And yet the truth is, there is no perfect woman among the daughters of Eve, which is all of you, right? Just like there's no man who is a perfect man among the daughters of Adam and Eve. Whether in the book of Proverbs or this room today, all of us, men and women, are not ultimately saved by our ability to fit our life according to the pattern of lists like these. They are helpful because they show us what to aspire to, what godliness looks like. But we remember that we're not saved by doing these things. And your ultimate worth isn't really in being able to accomplish every single one of these activities. Yes, they should give you pause and go, you know, I don't do that very well. And so whatever that area is in which you're weak, seek to repent and work with your husbands and your families to, to, to be better prepared or to be more dignified or, or whatever the case is so that you can emulate these things along with the fruit of the Spirit and all things in keeping with godliness in a better way for the glory of God and for the good of your family. But ultimately, it is not in being a Proverbs 31 woman that you find your ultimate dignity and worth. It is by recognizing that none of you are ultimately Proverbs 31 women and trusting instead in the one who is wisdom himself. In fact, that's the whole point of Proverbs. It gives us wisdom, but ultimately the wisdom is the one who is wisdom in his flesh, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. The one who is the promised child of Eve from Genesis 3.15, the great son who would crush the serpent and undo the curse and give us life and make all things new. The one who would take the curse of death and rise again to save all who trust in him. And that includes especially those faithful women who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who though they stumble and fall through the pitfalls of life alongside their husbands, they seek ultimately to love the Lord their God. That I would think if we are going to single out any verse from Proverbs 13, it would be verse 30, that that would be said of you, that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That this would be the heart of your femininity, Again, notice we didn't talk a lot about cultural expectations and things because culture comes and goes, it ebbs and flows, it changes all the time. But the fear of the Lord should remain in the heart of every woman of God. So pursue your fear of the Lord. Pursue that and then within that need and desire to love and serve and please God, seek to emulate the lifestyle that is described in the Bible. Be a nourisher, be a helper in various ways. And uh, we'll talk more specifically how that works itself out in the church and the home. But hopefully this gives us a foundation as to what the very heart of this is. 
a seeking a life of godliness, but ultimately having a fear of the Lord. And for all of us here, whether we're men and women, whether we're married or single, whether we're old or for young, that is true for all of us. Pursue godliness and fear the Lord and trust in Jesus Christ, who is the one that makes up for our lack and who died for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this description of a godly woman. And if we feel overwhelmed, some of the ladies here maybe this morning, about that that's just an impossible picture. It's kind of meant to be. But Father, may it give all of us, as we examine the the qualities that are found in a godly woman, recognize that those are the qualities that should be found in godly people. And though we all don't exhibit them all perfectly, and we fail at all of them, really, and we have strengths and weaknesses, they do give us a, a guide. They give us a, a set of values to emulate in our lives. And uh, they give us things to work on and to grow in. So we pray that you would help us to do that, to identify those areas of our lives where we're weak, and then to help with, uh, with the aid of our husbands or our wives or our families or our friends to improve in those areas as we grow in Christ. But ultimately, Father, may we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. May we look to Christ who was raised for our justification, who lived and not only gave us a perfect model of life, but then died because we, he knows that we cannot keep it. We not, cannot keep your law. We cannot earn our salvation. And so we need to trust in the goodness of Christ. And so, Father, forgive as they seek you. Forgive all the women and men who fail in the areas that you've called them to, to lead or to serve. And, Father, help us all to be more like our Savior and to trust in him more May we fear you in the, in, the, in the right way, even this morning, more when we leave, so that we seek to emulate the life of Christ in our lives. Help us to do this, and help those who may not know Christ this morning, who are hearing uh, this word. May they see that their greatest worth, that their greatest need is not in the things that they own. Their worth is not found in what they do, how much money they have, what their life looks like, whether they've got it all together, or their life looks more like a shipwreck. Father, that their ultimate worth Dignity and ultimate salvation are found only in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them at the cross. So, Father, I pray that if any are here this morning that, uh, that need to know more about what that looks like or what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to trust in him and what he did for us, that, Father, please, that you would uh, encourage their hearts to, to seek to speak to us this morning, to talk to one of us before they leave, that we might share with them what it means to follow Jesus. Help us now to respond in this song. May uh, we recognize that in all of this, that we need to be focused upon your son, for he is where we find not only a model for life, but more importantly, we find a savior of our souls. And so there is just something about his name uh, as our master, as our savior. Um, and uh, may we sing of the beauty of his name as we close our service this morning. So we thank you for all of this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our savior. Amen.